0: Hey, everyone, Sarah Peck here, and this is the Startup Pregnant Podcast. Today, we get to talk about so many of my favorite topics, uh, positive psychology and mental mastery and masterminds and why it is so important to surround yourself with brilliant communities of women and communities that support you and help you in all of your adventures and goals and visions and dreams. So today I have such an amazing guest to bring you all. Alex Jamieson is the best-selling author of the book, Women, Food, and Desire. Such a good book. I highly recommend. And she's also, I don't know if you've ever seen that documentary, Supersize Me, but she's the co-creator and co-star of that documentary, and it was nominated for an Oscar. She is a highly sought-after wellness expert. She's a coach for women, and she has made it her mission to empower women to create epic lives. She puts her money where her mouth is. She is so good at what she does. She knows so much about food, about transformation, about psychology, and about making work that matters in the world. She also has a podcast that I love, She's, which is number one rated in iTunes, called Her Rules Radio. So it's amazing to have her join as a guest today and tell us all about her learning journey, her parenting journey, and what she is up to in her business today. Welcome to the Startup Pregnant Podcast, where we talk to creative leaders about what it means to be an entrepreneur and a parent. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. Before we get started today, I want to tell you all about the mastermind that we're putting together for the Startup Pregnant community. One of the things that has changed my life the most, this is Sarah talking, my personal life, is being part of communities of women and entrepreneurs where we get to go really deep. People who hold me accountable, that laugh with me when things go crazy wrong, that cheer on my successes, that feel how painful it is when things don't work, and know how much time and energy it takes to really, really make beautiful work in the world. Community makes all the difference. So at Startup Pregnant, we are launching a mastermind program for Startup Pregnant listeners, for Startup Pregnant women, women who are interested in going deeper around questions about parenting, about motherhood, and about leadership in both business and life. We're launching a small private beta version of the mastermind this summer in June 2018. And if you would like to apply to join the mastermind, go to startuppregnant.com slash mastermind so that you can get on the list. And when you put your name on the list, I will send you more details about how the program works and what we're looking for and how to apply. So that link again is startuppregnant.com on our website slash mastermind. you can also find it in our main navigation. So go put your name on the list so that you can get more details and apply if this is something that sounds right for you. All right. I have Alex Jamieson on the line today. Alex, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Sarah. I am so thrilled to have you here. It seems like every time I read an essay by you or I hear about your work, there's another juicy but meaningful and deep article or idea that I always want to pick up the phone and call you and be like, can we talk about this for five hours?
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's a common curse, right? May you live in interesting times. Well, (laughs) sometimes life gives you lots of opportunities to examine these deep issues.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I sense that there's always more behind the story, too. It's not just, hey, I had an idea. Let me write about this. But there's always meat or not meat. There's substance. (laughs) Tofu. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So we have a lot of stuff we can talk about today. I want to start by asking you about this book, this ebook that you wrote called The F*** It List and how to create it. What's a It List? Can you Start there and tell us all about this magical F-U-F-It list.
1: Yeah, okay. Well, first of all, let me just say that I swear,
0: just sometimes the word
1: f*** is the only appropriate adjective or verb or noun to use, and I like it, and I stopped hiding it from my writing a couple years ago. I'm also a big positive psychology fan. I've done a lot of study. I've done a lot of certifications around positive psychology. And what I love about positive psychology is I started using it actually to help my son develop a a more resilient, gritty attitude towards school. He was diagnosed with dyslexia when he was really little, and it was really affecting his self-worth. And I was like, man, I I do not feel prepared. I don't know how to help him feel better about himself and feel resilient. So I went and did this whole positive psychology course. And then it automatically started showing up in my work as a coach with women, you know, mindset and, you know, transforming how you speak to yourself. And one of the main tenets of positive psychology is what's right with you. You know, what's good, focusing on the positive, you know, looking at your strengths, all those positive things, because we all have built in negativity bias. It's a great survival strategy. That humans have where we look for what's wrong and we fix the shit that ain't working. But it's also really overwhelming because there's so much to focus on that's wrong. So, positive psychology tries to get you to focus on what's right. And a lot of my clients that I was using with was like, Alex, I don't know what's right, or I don't know what I want. I know what I don't want. I know what's wrong. And so, instead of forcing them to focus on what was right, I was like, okay, fine, let's focus on what's terrible. And then we're going to flip it in reverse. So that's where the idea for this, how to write your f*** it list came from. It was like, all right, let's honor negativity bias. Let's get all the stuff that you hate down on paper about your body, about your work, about your career, about your relationships. Let's get all the stuff down that you hate. Let's get real specific about it. And then using positive psychology, we're going to flip it to help you figure out what you do want, to help you figure out what is going well, what your strengths actually are. And it's been a fun, reverse-engineered way to help people do that.
0: I think that's so interesting that you started this actually as a way to help your son. And you skipped over something that I think is pretty huge. You got a degree in positive psychology, which I think is pretty outstanding, especially because you did it while you were raising your kid. What was that like?
1: It's not a degree. It's a certification, and it's a training program called CAP here in New York City created by Emilia Zivotovskaya. I just love saying her name. And she <laughs> she created a really intensive program around positive psychology. You know, she was one of the first grads from the UPenn program. And she is the only person including physical vitality as an aspect of positive psychology. And I've been doing health coaching. I was a chef for a long time. I've been in the world of food and health and women's health for 15 plus years. So her program, which included the physical vitality, really made sense to me. There's a lot of other positive psychology programs out there. But I was like, Oh, of course, you have to have physical health as a part of this.
0: Mm, That makes so much sense. And thanks for clarifying about the course. For people who don't know what positive psychology is, can you give a little bit of context and background?
1: Yeah, so It's different from the kind of old school lay on the couch psychology, which is to really simplify things. And, you know, your listeners, as I have also experienced this, been to therapists in the past where they just focus on what's wrong, what's wrong, tell me what's wrong, what's not going well. And really, the main difference is that positive psychology is about focusing on what's right, what's right with you, what are your strengths, let's define what your strengths are. And how do you use those strengths in your life? And what are your values so that you can begin acting in a way that's aligned more with what you actually care about? I've found the work to be incredibly helpful. It's it's a lot of tools that people may be familiar with, like gratitude practices, but it's very science-based. As an example... I find that gratitude practices were always really annoying for me. <laughs> you know, it was like, write 10 gratitudes every night before bed. But like, I would do it for a night, and then I just felt like, ugh, I cannot do 10 gratitudes, and so you don't do it. Well, the science, and, and there's so much money now being funneled to positive psychology studies, the science shows that if you cannot come up with 10 gratitudes every night, you actually feel like a failure, and then you stop doing it, and you feel worse about yourself. So a great science-based positive psychology tool would be once a week, come up with three gratitudes, you know, instead of 10 every night, do three a week. And it's way more doable and it helps you feel successful. And that's really, I think the crux of positive psych for me is that it helps you feel resilient. It helps you feel like, ah, I have tools. I know how to do this you know, pick yourself up, dust yourself off, keep going, that kind of thing.
0: And so people create this get f- list where they write down, you know, f- it, x y z, all the things that they don't want, the negativity in their lives. And then what happens next? How do you craft the reverse side of it and what are some of the outcomes that you see?
1: So, there's a great truth about our human brains that when we tell ourselves that we're not going to do something, our brain doesn't hear the word "not." Let's say you wrote your bucket list or your resolutions for the year, and you wrote, "I'm not going to eat sugar." Well, your brain doesn't hear the "not." It doesn't hear what you're not going to do. It only hears the action of what you're going to do. So it keeps you focused on what you're not doing. I'm not going to eat sugar. Oh God, I'm not going to eat sugar. I'm not going. Oh, I'm eating sugar. Ah! The positive psychology bucket list alternative is, okay, I'm tired of feeling like shit because I eat sugar all the time. I feel hungover. It's affecting my weight. It's affecting my mood, my hormones, etc. I'm going to eat fruit every time I want something sweet. I'm going to eat a piece of real fresh food when I want something sweet. That's the positive psychology f*** list alternative. Rather than focusing on what's wrong and what you're not going to do, you turn it into, this is what I'm going to do. You give yourself an option.
0: And it really helps. Oh, I love that. Are there ways that you've either yourself personally or seen other people use it in business practices, or even in parenting in ways that have been pretty interesting? Well, I'm gonna gonna give you an example of what I am doing
1: personally right now. I just have to share this because I'm actually really excited about it. (laughs) Um, It's my own little budgetary goal for the quarter. So I like to make Seasonal resolutions rather than year long resolutions. So I decided for the winter, rather than say I'm not going to buy any new clothes, because I was like, all right, do I really need any clothes? I looked at my closet, it's full of stuff. I don't need to buy anything. Rather than say I'm not buying clothes until the end of March, I said, every time I think about buying something new, I'm going to put $10 in this savings account. And on my birthday at the end of March, I'm going to buy myself one amazing new thing for spring. And it's amazing how many times I think of about buying something new. <laughs> so I'm creating this little savings account for myself to buy something amazing. And I told my son about it. And we have this goal together where when he turns 18 and finishes high school, we're going to take a cross-country motorcycle trip together. So we opened this savings account for him. And we're now putting $10 a month. It's tied to a whole bunch of like chores and, you know, reading goals and stuff. So we're now like opening this kind of positive psychology motorcycle savings account for him.
0: Hmm. I love that. And I, as a parent, am kind of terrified about a motorcycle trip and also equally thrilled and excited. (laughs)
1: Well, he has to pass the motorcycle safety course before
0: we go. So okay. Okay. So, tell me about your life as a mom. When did you become a mom? Right before my 31st
1: birthday. And I was married to my first husband. And I never really thought about having kids growing up. It just didn't feel like something I was super psyched about. I babysat growing up. But you know, I was a very like, as most of us are, I was a very like self-involved teenager and young adult off doing my adventures and exploring the world and I never even thought I would get married. It just wasn't that important to me. So when I was in my, you know, real serious relationship in my mid and late twenties, it wasn't until that relationship when I really thought about it. And I was so excited when it was a boy. <laughs> didn't know what I was going to have. We waited to find out, you know, until he was born. And there was a part of me that was like, oh man, I hope it's a boy. Like I had always had more guy friends than girlfriends. And that goes back to a whole like mean girl episode in junior high where I just decided guys were safer to hang out with than girls. (laughs) So when I had a boy, I was super psyched about it. And I was really lucky that my husband at the time was He was doing well. I was able to take time off from my career. I took a couple years off. But actually, our our marriage was really on the ropes when I got pregnant. And we ended up separating when my son was about a year and a half old. So the beginning of my son's life, my marriage was not really solid. But I was very lucky in that I never doubted My now ex-husband's love for his kid. You know, while our marriage didn't survive, I knew that his dad would always be there for him. You know, we've we've done our best, we've had our struggles and things have gotten sometimes more complicated as he's gotten older. You know, challenges arise, but man, I love him. He is the greatest thing. It really makes you decide what kind of person you're gonna be. Like, what do you stand for? Do you honor your word? Are you aligning your actions and what you tell people you believe in? Oh, man, that's a lot.
0: (laughs) It's a huge, huge life transformation for many people. And that's why, that's why when we do these interviews, I don't think they're going to stop. There's just so many stories to tell about becoming a parent. How has becoming a parent for you changed how you show up in the world and how you behave. You were mentioning that you kind of are able to step into these bigger conversations and stand up for what you believe in. What do you mean by that? What does that look like?
1: Yeah, it really makes me think almost every action of my life. I think, how do I want my kid to witness me? Because I I remember I saw everything that was going on with my parents. I was very aware of the inconsistencies from a pretty young age. And I know that I'm not perfect, but I love my kid so much. It hurts. You know, I'm just crazy about him. And I know that I am a fallible human being. I know that he's going to see the little bits of hypocrisy that shine through, but I want him to know that I've really tried. And I've tried to have really honest conversations with him. I try not to hide the world from him, but I do couch it in gentle language. And he really thrives with sweetness. He's a sweet kid. And I definitely see how the patriarchy is kind of set up to f- over women and men. You know, he's a sweet kid. And luckily, he's surrounded by people both at school and in his family, for the most part, who are not going to say things like man up to him. I have witnessed parents doing that to their little boys, and it's just heartbreaking. It's really soul squashing. So I try to have my wits about me. I try to be aware of that kind of thing so that I am more patient, thoughtful with my words and actions. I know I'm not perfect, but oh man, I try not to get too overwrought about it too. We do like to have a good time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. The, that line, you're like, oh, I think a lot about everything I do, but I try not to become too neurotic.
1: So I am brainwashing him. You know, don't we all do that with our kids? We yeah. like, I want him to get my cultural references, so we have the same sense of humor. So I'm exposing him to like Monty Python and the 70s and 80s movies that I loved, and we watched Meatballs recently. Hmm. And there's a scene in that movie, and I love, love, love Meatballs. I love everything that guy has done, and we're watching the scene where he's wrestling, you know, one of the female camp counselors to the ground and she's like fighting him off and screaming, no, no, no. And he's tickling her and, and it's supposed to be funny. And I stopped the movie and I was like, hold on. I know we love Bill Murray. I know this movie is funny, but what he's doing right now is not okay. Like we actually have a no tickling policy in our house because both my husband now, and I were kind of traumatized by tickling when we were kids. It's like this invasive physical thing someone's doing to you that you're supposed to laugh at, but it's horrifying sometimes. So I was like, okay, I know I'm ruining meatballs for you right now, but that's not okay. That is the opposite of consent. So I've things for him all the time where I'm like, hold on, pause. We got to talk about
0: this. It's such a hard one because I think what you've shown here is I'm struggling with the words, but this is one of the reasons why I love talking to you, because I get to think about things so deeply. You know, when you become conscious or become aware of something that you thought was normal, you're like, it's just tickling. Like, why is tickling a problem? And then you're like, wait, here's why it's a problem. There's so much of this. This is somebody's body. They're saying no it can be such a challenge, especially as parents, especially in the culture that we're living in right now in the heart of the, or the height or the heart. I don't know if it's the height we'll see of the Me Too movement. There's just so much waking up that's happening, I think, yeah. for so many people.
1: Oh, big time. And I've gotten a lot of shit for this kind of thing. And you know, I was on a panel recently at this women in sex tech event here in New York City. And we were talking about how do we raise Are young men in this day and age? And I brought up the whole tickling thing, and people were definitely rolling their eyes at me in the audience. And, you know, they were like, You're being ridiculous. You know, you're taking all the fun out of life. I'm like, Okay. You know, maybe for you, it's taking all the fun out. For me, it was a really traumatic, scary thing in my life. And you can't make me unthink that. So (laughs) this is how it is. And you're right. You're right. Once you
0: see it in a certain way, you can't turn a blind eye to it. It's like you can't unsee it. And there's so many pieces of this conversation that are so hard to have at times because we try to listen to everybody's experience. What is it like for you? And and what's happening? And what does that mean? And what's it like for them? So this brings me to something I really wanted to ask you about, which is something you're really incredible at. And that's how to say no with really powerful boundaries. Let's dive in here. I think the art of saying no is really hard for a lot of people. How did you learn how to say no well? And how do you teach people how to say no well? You know,
1: I have got to think my dear mom who passed away a few years ago. She was a serious hippie feminist artist, rebellious contrarian in her own right. And she was very vocal about what she would and would not accept. It really grated on me at a young age. You know, my folks divorced, and I thought, you know, oh, mom's just so hard to get along with. But I I realize now, looking back, wow, I am so grateful for her demonstrating her boundaries consistently. And my grandmother too, my mom's mom. You know, she was married to a doctor growing up in the you know the fifties and sixties, and she divorced him in the early sixties because he was abusive and you know a drug addict and to have a grandmother who divorced her doctor husband when she got no support from her family you know divorcing a doctor in the 60s was not okay and she was very clear that she would not accept this behavior that she was saving her own life so i had these two incredible women to look up to in that way And you know, another aspect of it, and I I really need to go look up the studies around this, but anecdotally, my father was a coach. He was a soccer coach and a swim coach. And I played a lot of team sports growing up. And there's pretty good evidence that girls who play team sports growing up are less likely to be involved in or stay in abusive relationships. You learn to be aware of your physical self and you're more competitive in that physical way. There's something about your physical boundaries that you learn in team sports. So I think there's a whole constellation of things. And I was also really encouraged by my parents to travel when I was young, to travel by myself. You know, my mom did study abroad growing up. She went to Spain and she went to Peru and you know, from a young, young age, she was like, go see the world, go travel by yourself. If nobody wants to go with you, do it, go, it's the best thing you can ever do. And there was also inherently in that message and learn how to take care of yourself. You know, don't be dumb. Be aware of your surroundings, speak up for yourself. Then I took, you know, a uh, self-defense class in college, like just all these little examples of things. And yet, I have been terrified walking down the street by myself at night. I have been groped repeatedly by an ex-boss. You know, I have my own me too stories of leering and groping. And so even though I feel very strong and I feel like I can stand up for myself and I feel like I can say no and I know how to set boundaries and keep them, I've still had my moments where things did not go so great.
0: How do you learn from that? How do you stand up? How do you keep going? How do you say no?
1: So actually, my husband now, Bob and I, we've been together for seven years. Bob and I have a, (laughs) this sounds so dorky, we have a conversation structure that we (laughs) use together. (laughs) We have this ongoing four-part conversation structure that we use together for almost everything. And man, we should totally come back on your show and teach it at some point, but I'll give you the rough, the four points. Oh, please. I just
0: pushed my glasses up and leaned closer to the microphone.
1: (laughs) Ooh, something juicy. I was like, ooh, ooh, four-part
0: conversation structure, let's go. (laughs) (laughs) So we're actually
1: writing a book on this right now. It should be out in the next few months. We call it ICBD, Intentions, Concerns, Boundaries, and Desires. And he teaches this structure in corporate boardrooms as a consultant. I teach it to my clients, health coaching and success coaching. And we use it with our son. We use it as a family before we go on vacations to visit his family. Like we use this conversation all the time. We share our intentions for what we're going to do. We share our concerns, you know, just honoring all of the worst case scenario flights of fancy that you might have. And then we share our boundaries. And to be able to have this ongoing conversation about what my boundaries are and to know that it's safe to change my boundaries because he and I have this conversation now that we're always in. So, okay, give you an example. We go to visit his mom sometimes. And when we go to visit, we always do the ICBD, intentions, concerns, boundaries, and desires before we go. And one of my boundaries has always been, I need at least one hour a day alone by myself when we go to your mom's house. I either need to go for a walk or I need the car and I'm going to go to a Starbucks. Like I just need to be off by myself. So that's a boundary that I have. And we know that if we're in the midst of a visit there and I decide this boundary needs to change, we are there for each other to hear that something has changed. You know, things can change in the moment and it doesn't always go 100% perfectly, but man, it's so great to have these conversations before you endeavor into something and to feel heard and respected and like, okay, the other person knows now what I need and what I don't want and what I do want. It is awesome. We've been teaching it to our kid. We teach it to everybody. So feel free to use it.
0: That sounds amazing. And I think I missed the D, the last one. Ah, desires. So always end on
1: a high note. And it's kind of like the bucket list, right? We reverse engineer. This is what I don't want when we go visit your family. But here's what I do want when we visit your family. I actually, like, I want to build new cozy memories. I want to go have fun. I want to go to the Amish market. You know, I really want to, like, feel closer together to your family and to you and to help you feel closer to your family. You know, like you really end on that highest ideal for whatever you're about to do.
0: Hmm. You know what I love about that boundaries one, too, that you brought up was the ability to change because a lot of times we don't know until we put something into practice. And I'm thinking explicitly of the other day when my husband was like, hey, can I have the rest of your Thai food? And I was like, I don't know, sure. Sure. And then when I watched him pull it out of the fridge, I had this reaction like, no, don't eat that. (laughs) It's mine. (laughs) And I was shocked by how strong my reaction was. I just had this like little four-year-old inside of myself cry like, you're eating my food. I was like, oh, guess I feel differently than I thought I did. So I had to tell him, I was like, you know what? I actually changed my mind. I totally said it was okay for you to eat my lunch leftovers, but I don't want that anymore. Like, And I feel weirdly, really strongly about this, but the permission to be able to change your boundaries is, I think, pretty revolutionary. Even having them in the first place, I think, I hope that people listening are kind of exhaling and being like, wait, I can stand up and I can say this and then I can change my mind. Mind blown. You are so right. I totally agree with you. It takes the pressure off
1: when we realize we don't have to get it perfect or that I think this is what I'm going to need and want. And if I get into it and it's not, it's okay to admit that I was wrong or that this isn't working. And that allows us to take more risks in every area of our life. So the, the examples that you and I just gave were, you know, seemingly small and mundane. But when you put them into practice and you start to notice, wow, like I can take risks. In my, I can say what I want and say what I don't want. And it's okay to be wrong. And it's okay to be right. And wow, maybe I could take bigger risks in my business, with my clients, in my career, with creative projects that I want to make and put out there in the world because I have this practice of saying what I want,
0: saying what I don't want, and it being
1: okay to be wrong.
0: What are some of the areas in your life where you are taking creative risks or trying things that you haven't tried before? Oh, man. I call my life a
1: series of successful failures. I have written so many book proposals that never got made into books. Just in the last couple years, really in the last year, I have changed my business model, which was hella scary. You know, I've been a health and food coach for, you know, 14 plus years. And in the last couple years, I have been moving away from that just in the last six months, I shut down my flagship cravings cleanse program. You know, I still do food and health coaching for my private clients, but I don't want to make that my focus anymore. And it was so scary, so hard to admit that. And I had to change my own thinking around it because I know that you've invested in your own education and, you know, learning about how you want to build your business. You and I are like eternal learners, right? We're Mm going to be students of life for the rest of our life. But to look back at all the time and money and heart that I've put into that formation of my career and to then say, that's not what I want anymore. It's just not feeding my soul. In the way that I need it to, and to announce to my audience, past clients, readers, etc., like, hey guys, I am not the cravings coach anymore. <laughs> I'm now doing this. Come along for the ride. Very scary. Very, very scary. And I was really worried that people were gonna judge me. I have hung out in circles of people in my industry. You know, I had really built a name and a reputation for myself in a certain way, you know, I made the movie supersize me, I wrote three books on vegan health and nutrition, i had been doing these programs that people have helped me promote. And I was worried that my old friends like wouldn't want to play with me anymore. if I changed what my focus for coaching was what my business was going to look like. And now I realize, okay, that's kind of a silly fear. But yeah, you are at risk of not staying in the same communities anymore. It's not that people are going to Turn your their back on you necessarily. It's just like okay. Well, if I'm not in food, but I'm in self development, positive psychology, mindset, etc., I'm going to be like networking with different people, hanging out in a slightly different crew, and that's okay. So I have to remind myself that I'm always supported. That the friends who are really true heart and soul friends will always be there. I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we face as we take risks and you know, go after our creative desires is, are people going to judge me for this? Are they not going to like me anymore? Are they going to think I'm a total fool? Okay, here comes that self-doubt again. You know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. I bet everybody is nodding. What was the impetus for the change? I had been feeling it for a, a long time, actually. And, you know, my last book that came out was called Women, Food and Desire. It came out about three years ago. And I really started to straddle the worlds of, you know, not just talking about food and health anymore and what people should eat, but why we eat the way we eat and all of the other aspects, especially women's health, our relationship with our body, our relationship with food, and this new world and this new area of study for me, talking about sex, talking about desire, talking about pleasure. Even positive psychology, you know, talking about nature, talking about all these different aspects. I was like, man, I am just so much more turned on by that. I really cannot tell people what to eat anymore if I can't also talk about these things. So I tried to straddle the two for a while. You know, tried to do food and all the other stuff. It's too complicated, at least the way I was trying to do it. You know, maybe there are people out there who are able to market themselves <laughs> better, but it wasn't working for me. And I started to see it in my business. You know, I wasn't getting the turnout for my programs like I used to. It felt a lot harder to sign up the number of clients for my programs that I needed to make it work. So I really had to step back and think like, what feeds me and what feeds the kind of people I want to serve You know, that Venn diagram, what are people willing to pay for? What do they need? And what do I love doing? And it turned into, you know what? Actually, I don't really want to offer these huge, massive hundreds of people online cleanses anymore. I want that one-on-one work again. Now I started doing that at the very beginning of my career, just coaching people one-on-one. It's like, I am ready to go back to that. That's powerful. I love it. People want it. There was some dancing around for a year to kind of get back to this. I think that's something else that might be helpful for your listeners to hear that it's not always so obvious that it takes some time to figure it out. It's not like it's
0: just going to drop in one day and you're like, Oh, here's my new business. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Especially because when I go back and I record the introduction for this show, I'm going to say all of these amazing things about you. And people get this image, right? This four amazing books and the Super Size Me documentary and this and this and this. And it's so wonderful to be able to hear inside the mind and the heart of another person and realize like, oh, no, these things take time and they're scary. And making a pivot like this, because you went through a rebrand of everything, right? Even your podcast.
1: Yeah, yeah, I did. And just a few years before that, I had come out as no longer vegan anymore. and that was annoying. So I was like, God, didn't I just go through this? Didn't I just go from not being the vegan coach anymore to like being this kind of cravings coach? And now I'm doing this other kind of thing. I'm like, geez, do I have to do this every three years? And apparently I do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and you mentioned, you mentioned you were afraid of the judgment and the criticism, and there wasn't that much. But I know that for coming out as no longer vegan, that can be a particularly black and white kind of issue. A lot of people can get very fired up about that.
1: That one was a show. Yeah. Coming out as no longer vegan went viral in a way that I had not anticipated and not in a way that I had desired. I was vegan for over a decade. I had written these three vegan cookbooks and my health started to deteriorate. My hormones were messed up. My thyroid was impaired. All this stuff was seriously anemic for a long time. I could not fix it. And I realized like for my health, I have got to go try animal products again. And it started to help, started to work. It actually has taken quite a while to heal all the repercussions. But when I finally like came out and said, hey, guys, I'm not vegan anymore. And here's why. Not everyone, obviously, but a good chunk of the vegan community just lost their minds. And, you know, thousands of comments, thousands of shares. I mean, death threat emails. I lost half my newsletter list in a week. It was just terrifying. And that's the kind of thing that keeps people from making changes in their business. They're afraid that they're going to have that kind of backlash. I can tell you, unless you're (laughs) now, that probably won't happen to you. (laughs) Even the people I know who have come out as no longer vegan since Mine that haven't had such a hard time with it because it was so over the top. And, you know, if you are moving from relationship coaching to business coaching, or you decide you want to go from, you know, being a corporate lawyer to being a jewelry designer, like, I mean, very few people are going to care. The fear that we have around change and being judged is very primal, though. You do have to, I think, get support around you before you make the change so that you can follow through with the change. Mm
0: and you came out the other side there are issues they vary right in intensity for which people are very passionate about and there's always going to be somebody that disagrees with you and your choices especially if you change in their presence and finding a way to navigate that and find the team of support as you're saying is so crucial which leads me to this last question i wanted to make sure to ask while you're on the show this first time i'm sure i'll have you on the show again i want to ask you about masterminds, or you call it a mistress mind. Why are masterminds so useful and so powerful? And how do you go about building this community of support around you?
1: Mm, I love them so much. (laughs) I've been a member of, I'll say, six to eight different masterminds over the last 15 years. I created one for myself here in New York City of other women in my kind of network. and. You know, a mastermind is basically a group of people that comes together to support each other on one area of focus. And it can definitely be a lot of different topics that you cover, but, you know, it might be for health, it might be for spiritual pursuits, it might be for business. Usually they end up being a combination of everything because we're whole people and everything we do affects everything else we do. But what's so beautiful about them, and I will speak specifically to women, is that women really thrive in community. And I had a very hard time being with women. As I alluded to before, I'd had these kind of mean girl episodes from middle school where I'd gotten, you know, gossiped about, lied about, kicked out of the group. And it was always really hard for me to be in groups of women. I was coming up on my 40th birthday So just a few years ago, when I realized I'm almost 40 years old and I'm afraid to be with more than one woman at a time, (laughs) my husband and I were planning our wedding. I was like, oh my God, most of my friends don't even know each other. How weird is that? Like I've got tons of friends and they don't know each other because I like to hang out with them one at a time. (laughs) (laughs) It was such a shock to me when I realized I was like, oh my gosh, wait what impact is this having on my life that I'm afraid to be in groups of women? And so I started having friends over, you know, three or four at a time to my house to do something fun. And I would admit to them, like, this is part of my, what do they call it? You know, like desensitization therapy or whatever. Oh, yeah.
0: Systematic desensitization, I think. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes. This is my own personal desensitization program. Where I am like trying to get used to women in groups and stop being such a freak about this. And as I started to be honest about it, other women were like, oh, me too. Oh, oh, yeah, I've had that. <laughs> you know, I was not the only one. So these mastermind groups that I've been a part of have also been my way of getting into community with women. And we really are hardwired to thrive in groups. You know, we release oxytocin together. Oxytocin is that amazing, lovey, bonding cuddle hormone. When we get together and we laugh or we cry, the oxytocin just like starts shooting out into the atmosphere and we start to feel high. Have you ever noticed that when you are with a group of girlfriends, wine involved or not, and you laugh or cry, you start like sharing. By the end of it, you feel like drunk. Even (laughs) even if you've been having tea. And it's a very chemical bond that we form with each other. And I think in this day and age, we are more and more reclusive. I definitely am, you know, I work from home in Brooklyn. There are many, many days in a row where I will not leave my little neighborhood and I will only see my kid and my husband. And I have made it a huge part of my life. I invest my time. I invest my money to go be with women on a regular basis. Mm. It's also so valuable to us because, you know, I live in New York City. I can find a group that's into whatever I'm into, you know, with the drop of a hat. If I want to go bird watching with the Audubon people, I can do that. You know, if I want to find a group of spiritual entrepreneurs, I can find a group any night of the week that's meeting up. But maybe you live in a town where there's not a lot of people doing these things. Maybe you need a way to connect with people where they're going to support you through whatever change it is that you are wanting to create in your life. And that's what masterminds do. You know, you got to intentionally seek out the ecosystem that you want to grow into so that you can have that support to evolve for yourself.
0: Oh, I love that. I love that. And I'm a, you know, mastermind junkie or geek as well. Maybe this is true for more people than just you and me. But I I get the sense that there's a little bit of um, like relearning how to be with other women that happens in your 30s. Because the same is true for me. And it's been extraordinary. And I, I wish I could somehow put like a time capsule together for my 18 or 16 year old self and just be like, you know what, it's gonna be more amazing than you even know. But you have to build it. But just keep going.
1: Oh, I know. I wish I had stayed in better touch with a lot of women that I met growing up, you know, pre Facebook. There's no way to, like, I cannot find them now. (laughs) The scarcity and the worry and the jealousy that I felt around women has really, really evaporated. I've had a lot of opportunities in my life to, um, See, again, I'll, I'll blame it on the patriarchy, but I've had a lot of opportunities to see how the patriarchy actually sets women against each other. I feel it. It's like this deep duty of mine to see the matrix and to really have heart to heart conversations with women or face my own scarcity mentality, whether it's around men or business. You know, I mean, I know I'm not alone in this, but the divides between women, it's false. It's a false narrative. It's bullshit. It's keeping us from our real power. And I think that's one of the best things. I'm going to get political real quick here. I think that's one of the best things about Trump. Maybe the only good thing is how many women are running for office now. I think Me Too is a result of the Trump bullshit that we've been witnessing. We've just had enough. And we're having to shed a lot of the the walls that we've kept between ourselves and other women. It's hard work. And it requires admitting that we were wrong. It requires forgiveness. It requires being really
0: honest. But I think we're all ready for it. I think we're ready to just be done with all that. Amen. In terms of just being done with that. And if there is something that brings more women together, I am in support, strangely enough. Me too. So, Alex, where can people find more of your work? Where can they listen to your podcast? And tell us about your internet social handles and everything. Oh,
1: yay. So I've got a podcast as well. It's called Her Rules Radio, where women go to make their own rules. Some of my own personal rants, monologues, and lots of interviews. I also have the Fit it list. You know, people can go to my website, com, and it's under free stuff. And you can download the Fit it list for free. And I say download two. make a copy for your girlfriend and do it with a friend because it's way more fun that way.
0: Hmm. I love it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for being so honest today. It's, I think, the kindest thing we can do for each other.
1: Mm, thank you. Pleasure to be here.
0: All right, everyone, just a reminder that if you want to learn more about the mastermind we're putting together for Startup Pregnant, it's an amazing community support space for women to connect with each other about entrepreneurship and parenting. We're doing the beta round this summer, so you can find out a lot more about the program over on our website, startuppregnant.com slash mastermind. Get your name on the list so that I can send you information about it because we're putting together a small pilot group for a group of women this summer. We would love to have you there. And one more ask. If you are listening to this and you are enjoying all of these episodes, we are looking for more sponsors for the episodes. In particular, we are doing a campaign for listener-backed radio, which means you listening. If you want to contribute $5 or $10 a month because this podcast is meaningful and worth it to you, that actually makes a huge difference for us. We're doing a big campaign right now to keep going with all of our mini episodes, and we can't do it without you. We've got cost to cover and editors to pay for and a whole bunch of things that it takes to make this work. So. This has been an experiment, the entire Startup Pregnant project. And if you want to see it keep going and you want it to keep growing, we would love your support. Every dollar helps in these early days, as you know, as a founder and as a business owner and as a mom. So if you've got any spare change and you want to contribute a cup of coffee our way, head to patreon.com startuppregnant Startup Pregnant. The link will be in the show notes, as always. And it means a, a tremendous amount to us to have the support of so many of you already. We're trying to reach our goal to keep the mini's episodes going. So um, go donate a cup of coffee and thank you in advance from the bottom of my heart because I love having these conversations and being able to bring this work into the world. Thank you so much for being a listener of the show. A few more things before we end this episode. First, if you know of a woman or a friend that would benefit from this show, send them a link to our website at startuppregnant.com so many of you have already reached out and shared your stories, what this podcast is doing for you. And for that, I am so grateful. So if you know of somebody that would love to listen in, or you think that these stories would really hit it home for somebody, feel free to send it along. Second, if you've got a story that you need to share or tell, head over to startuppregnant.com and send us a note. We have had so much reader mail already, and your stories mean the world to us. We are proudly listener sponsored, so if you want to sponsor the show and hear more episodes, head over to our Patreon page and you can buy us a cup of coffee or two or three. We'll take many cups of coffee. If you want any of the show notes or links from this particular episode, all of the references and tools and tips that we talk about are always posted on startuppregnant.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you on the next episode.